So we are in Ruth chapter 2 today, and as you remember last week, we began this little story, this short story that occurred, uh, real events that occurred over 3,000 years ago in ancient Israel, even before the time of King David. And we saw in that first chapter that a believer uh, had this huge tragedy happen in her life, Naomi. Her husband died while she was living in a foreign country, while this, this family was traveling and trying to survive during a famine. Uh, they were sojourning in Moab uh, with their two sons, and all the men in her life suddenly died, and she was just left alone in her tragedy there. But Ruth, her daughter-in-law, actually chose to return to Israel with her. So her daughter-in-law left everything, and out of pity and compassion for her, uh, she accompanied her mother-in-law. And we saw there that, that God was telling us that often uh, when we have tragedies, that those tragedies will tend to blind us from what God is doing. So we will be focused and, and preoccupied with the blessings God's removing, but we'll often not realize the great blessings God is bringing into our life through those tragedies. And we saw that last week. And now we turn to chapter 2 as these two widows are settling down and returning to Israel. Uh, we see that this chapter is going to address a, a very common problem for the believer. And that's the whole problem of, of worry. Of worry. Uh, and we'll see that and experience that through the eyes of Ruth. Uh, we often do things. Uh, we're, we're, we often come to situations where we are at a crossroad and we realize we need to take some sort of risk. Or we mean, need to make some sort of sacrifice or we feel prompted to do that uh, as an expression of love for God and love for the people for the people God has placed in our lives. We can be hesitant and afraid to really serve God uh, with all of our life and to really trust God with each, with each step. And so we're going to, to see what happened to Ruth, a woman who, who left everything, risked everything you could say, uh, to serve her mother-in-law. And we'll see what, what happened to her, how God dealt with her. And this is the main uh, lesson God would want you to learn from chapter 2, that as you sacrificially serve God and love others, you can count on God to generously provide for you. Okay, that's the main idea for us today. As you sacrificially serve God and love others, you can count on God to generously provide for your needs. And he'll do that in a number of ways. Uh, let's look at the first way that he provided for Ruth, just reading a few verses here. Now Naomi had a kinsman of her husband, a mighty man of excellence, of the family of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, Please let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after one whom may I, whom am I I may find favor in his eyes. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she went. And she came and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And it so happened that she happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. Now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, May Yahweh be with you. And they said to him, May Yahweh bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? 
The young man in charge of the reapers replied, She is the young Moabite woman who returned with Naomi from the fields of Moab. And she said, Please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. Thus she came and has remained from the morning until now. She has been sitting in the house for a little while. So here we see uh, Boaz is introduced. The narrator introduces a new character in verse 1. It says, Now, Naomi had a kinsman, a relative, a relative of her husband who had passed away. And this man, we are told, was a mighty man of excellence related to her husband, and his name was Boaz. So here's the hero. So spoiler alert, here's the hero uh, walking onto the stage. It's a man named Boaz. And God is going to use this man to provide for these two ladies that are in need. Uh, There's one man in this village in Bethlehem. It wouldn't have been a huge community, not a massive city by any means, but uh, a decent-sized community for the time. And there's, there's one man out there amongst all those people that has a special obligation to these ladies, being a relative, and also has the means to do it. And so we see, we see that, that there is this man out there somewhere uh, that is able to provide for them. And how is this man described? Uh, notice the author describes him as a mighty man of excellence. It's quite an uh, introduction, quite a, a commendation from the author and from the Holy Spirit, inspiring the author. Uh, these words, a mighty man of excellence, those could be used to describe a warrior. So if we read in other contexts where there's a, a war happening and there's courageous men fighting, they're called mighty men of valor. So the same words. It's also used to describe uh, an influential man in society, someone that carries a lot of clout in the community, or also a wealthy man. And often these things overlap and coincide, don't they? Men that are prominent tend to also be men of means, and, um, but there's one sense in particular that the author is bringing out, uh, and that's his integrity. So it's a, he has a strength of character. Uh, this is a man that's not just wealthy or influential, but he has a, an extraordinary integrity. And we know that because Ruth is called the same thing in the next chapter. She's called a woman of excellence. Okay, and so the Holy Spirit is introducing this man as a man of integrity, and as a godly man, and we'll see how he, he acts in the story. He's the hero. And it, it's worth noting, especially the, to those of us that are younger men, right, that this is what a hero is. Uh, that we need to pay attention to how Scripture defines a male hero and what, what would really produce that kind of reputation. Uh, not necessarily someone that is a um, rich uh, that person's not necessarily a hero, not necessarily someone that's an uh, effective warrior, not necessarily a hero, according to God, uh, but most of all, it's a man of integrity. And we see that in Boaz, and we will see that. Ruth, however, has no idea about this guy. From her perspective, she's, lost ev- she's left everything and come to Israel, trusting in God. We saw that she was actually converted to God to worship the true God of Israel. And from, from, from her perspective, she has no idea how she's going to be provided for. Uh, she says to her mother-in-law, let me go and glean. The word glean means to pick up scraps. 
And in, uh, at this time, you, if you just glance up one or two verses to the end of chapter 2, we, we're reminded that this is during the time of harvest. So the harvest is happening in the fields outside of Bethlehem. And as the, the landowners are reaping their harvest, they're leaving some scraps for the poor. And so Ruth says, let me just go and see, see what I can scrape up off the ground, uh, because that is all we have to live on. They were, this is implying, this is, it's very clearly implying that they were very poor. So Naomi did not have this huge stash of uh, cash to fall back on. And so they were out basically going to the food pantry equivalent, right, today. Uh, but this practice of gleaning, it wasn't just a, um, a, a random thing. Like she didn't just hope this would, she would find scraps of food. People in Israel were commanded to do this, to observe this. Uh, in Leviticus, in the law of Moses, it says God commanded his people and said, Now when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very corners of your field, nor shall you gather the gleanings from your harvest, nor shall you glean your vineyard nor gather the fallen fruit of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the afflicted and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. And so God commanded his people to do this. As you're reaping, you know, reap your land. That does belong to you. It's not that everyone, it's communism. Everyone owns each other's property. No, you have a right to your property. But as you're reaping out of compassion for the poor, when you notice that you missed a, you missed a section or you dropped a bunch of stuff or even the corners of your field. You, you want to leave enough so that people can come and get a meal uh, if they really have nothing to fall back on. This is actually mentioned several times in the law, not just once. And God says explicitly that this law was to be an, ex- uh, an expression of his compassion for the poor, not only for the poor in Israel, but the poor from outside of Israel that may have come to Israel, the foreigner. He says, that God shows love for the sojourner by giving him food and clothing. Therefore, show love for the sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. That's what God told his people. He said, you remember what I did for you, how I was compassionate and merciful to you and provided for you in the wilderness. So now you do the same thing. When people come to your nation and these people, are, they don't have anything, they have nothing, I want you to pass along the same compassion that I showed to you. And so that was how God expressed his compassion for the poor, uh, by giving them opportunities to work for a meal. So notice that these people did have to do their own work. It wasn't just a food delivery to their door. They, they did have to do some work. They had to harvest and they had to beat it out and, and prepare the food themselves. But it, the Israelites, they were commanded to give the poor opportunities to, to find a meal when they needed it. So that's a little background about what she's talking about there. And she says, well, let me go and do this because that's, that's our only option. So Naomi says, okay, go ahead. And she, verse three, it says, so she went and she came and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And it so happened that she happened to come to the f- portion of the field belonging to Boaz. And so that, uh, that, those words in the middle of that verse, in my translation, it says she, she hap- it happened that she happened to come. Uh, your translation might just say she happened to come to this field. Either way, the author is subtly hinting that 
this is a bit unusual. There's this one man out there who can help her. And she, from her perspective, she's, she's not from Bethlehem. She doesn't know where to go. She just says, I'm going to go to some field. Roll the dice. Pick a random field. And she just, she just so happens to come to the right field of this man. Uh, she, the word chance is actually used there. In other places, our translations uh, translate one of these words, chance. Uh, her chance came upon this particular field. And this is raising this whole issue of chance. Uh, if God is, is working for us and providing for us, but, but we often can't recognize that or see that, uh, well then, he must be doing that in hidden ways, in ways that we don't, we don't always see, like Ruth. She didn't, know, she didn't know what was happening. She was just picking a random field. Uh, but most of the world, most people, the majority of people would venture to say, believe in some form of chance, don't they? Uh, from our limited perspective, it's not e- always easy, it's rarely easy to connect events, especially minor events, to some overarching divine purpose. Uh, where, why was I born here? Uh, why did I get sick on Friday, not Monday? Uh, why did the dice fall out in this, on number four instead of five? Uh, you know, why do I, why did I have these siblings, not these other siblings? Why did I, how did I end up here? in Orland, uh, with this particular job, you know, with these people. And we say, well, because the purpose of these things falling out this way isn't printed in big, bold letters. I didn't get some letter in the mail from God explaining. We just say, well, things just happen. Things just happen, and we don't, there's not, not necessarily a purpose behind that. And this is raising that issue for us, and Scripture acknowledges that. Uh, it doesn't say that chance is real, that randomness is real, but it does say that, yeah, often this is how we perceive life. It's just random, like Ruth, picking a random field. The Philistines, you remember, uh, we read in First Samuel, they stole the Ark of the Covenant, and they being enemies of Israel, God sent a plague among them, so they had these mysterious tumors breaking out, and they said, this is we're, we're highly suspicious that this happened to us because we stole the Ark of the Covenant from Israel, you know, this golden box that symbolized God's presence. And so they said, okay, we'll do a test. We'll, we'll perform a test. We'll put this on a, on a cart, and we'll, we'll put two cows to pull it, and we'll send them off kind of in a rough direction of Israel, but down a path uh, where the cows would be prone to pick the path that would lead south away from Israel. They would have had to go basically straight up this, this steep path to go toward Israel. And they said, okay, if, the ca- if these cows take this sharp turn on the road and go toward Israel, then, then we know that this was not by chance. They actually used the same word chance in that passage. And so wh- what did the cows do? Do you remember? They, they took the sharp turn, didn't they? And so they said, oh boy, it wasn't chance after all. And so every, every time where this word is, is used, and it's used in Ecclesiastes as well, it's acknowledging that this is how we perceive life, but it also denies that it's really things are happening as we perceive them. That no, there really is a divine purpose. Not only in the big things, in the huge events of world history, but even in, just think of the, the things that happened to you this morning. All the little things that you, you probably forgot already. There's a divine purpose behind everything. Uh, so she came to the right place. 
But she also came at the right time, didn't she? In verse 4, we see that. Now behold, is what the narrator says. Behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. So he, he wasn't there 24-7. And so the, the moment she arrives, he just happens to come shortly thereafter. Uh, so she came at the right time to meet him. And again, from his perspective, nothing remarkable is happening. He's, well, I'll go to my field now. I guess maybe I was delayed for some reason. Maybe he wasn't there the day before. But for some reason, he comes at this particular time when she's there. And he is, as has already been hinted at, a godly man and a man of integrity. And it's not an accident at all that in in verse 4, the first words out of his mouth are, may Yahweh bless you. May the Lord, the covenant Lord, covenant-keeping God, bless you. Those are the first words out of this man's mouth. And so we're, we're anticipating, okay, this, God is going to use this man uh, in the life uh, of Ruth uh, to help her. We're, we're strongly anticipating that at this point. And so he learns who this woman is, and uh, the, um, her reputation obviously preceded her. So it was probably a bit like our town. You know, knew, if there's something, someone comes from Moab, uh, c- comes to our town, it'll, the news will probably spread at some point, especially if there was some remarkable story. It's the same way in Bethlehem. It was news, it was town news that this lady had moved from Moab, converted to become Jewish, basically, and accompany her mother-in-law to Bethlehem. And we, we read that in the last chapter, that the whole city was stirred in, in a buzz when Naomi came back. And so the whole town knew who Ruth was. And so that's the, uh, the significance of those first few verses in chapter 2, is that God is, is calling our attention to these these really ordinary things that happen. I mean, what's more ordinary than going to work? Uh, Both Ruth and Boaz are just commuting to work. From Ruth's perspective, she's going to glean, gather some scraps for a meal. And Boaz, he's just going to to mind to to be in charge of his field, to, to oversee it and see that things are working in the right way. Um, But it's not an accident. And we've already been prepared to see that. And so God is telling us here that he, he does use what we would call chance to care for us, right, to provide for us. So this, this section is all about God's generous provision of those who serve him and take risks for him. And one of the ways that God, God provides for us is just by really ordinary things that you don't give a second thought to. Uh, all the things that result and come together come together to result in God providing for you the food you need uh, and the shelter you need as well. And then in verse 8 through verse 16, we also see that Ruth is receiving favor from the right people. So God provides also by giving us favor with certain people. That's how God provides for us as well in a way that's hidden we don't always recognize. So look what Boaz says to Ruth. He says, Have you not heard, my daughter? Do not go to glean in another field. Furthermore, do not go on from this one, but stay here with my young women. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap and go after them. Indeed, I have commanded the young men not to touch you. And if you are thirsty, go to the water jars and drink from what the young men draw. So Boaz is being extremely generous to her. That's what we're meant to pick up on here. So as I said, there was a law that uh, a landowner who had a farmer he was obligated to leave some extra 
But what he was not obligated to do was say, okay, you can hang out here all through the harvest and just, just take as much as you want. Um, and usually the gleaners, they'd have to wait for the harvesters to finish. And if they got too close to the harvesters, just imagine you're harvesting your field, then all these people start coming up and start taking stuff out of your basket or, or whatever you use to collect it. I know it's much different nowadays, but uh, back then that would have been a, um, a no-no. Okay, you, don't, you can't be too close to the reaping. You have to wait till the reapers are done. But he says, no, you can actually stay here in this field and you can, be, you can go after them. Uh, you can stay close by them and you can even drink from our water. And so again, he was not obligated to do that. He didn't have to give her free water. Uh, that was a, a great privilege. So she would have everything she would need to, to work and gather food for her and for Naomi. And so she expresses that gratitude. She, she recognizes immediately, this man is being unusually generous with me. This is far beyond what, what I expected to find. And she says, why have I found favor in your sight? Remember that? She, she was going out. She told her mother-in-law, I won't, I'm going out to whoever that I may find favor in his eyes. So here she's saying, I've found favor but why have I found favor in your sight that you should take notice of me, though I am a foreigner? Boaz replied to her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law after the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you forsook your father and your mother in the land of your birth and came to a people that you did not know previously. May Yahweh fully repay your work, and may your wages be full from Yahweh, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. Then she said, May I find favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and indeed have spoken to the heart of your servant woman, though I am not like one of your servant women. And so here he acknowledges her character, doesn't he? So she says, Why have I found favor in your eyes? Why are you being so kind to me? And he doesn't say, well, I'm, I just woke up on the right side of the bed this morning, or it's just random. He says, no, I actually, I've heard of what you've done. And it's from one godly person to another. I, I have a special heart for people that are serving God and serving, other pe- serving others sacrificially. And I want to make sure that you have everything you need. I want to honor those who are honoring God in the way they're living. And she's, he acknowledges her great sacrifice that she made. And then he also pronounces this benediction on her. So you remember this book is full of these little prayers. So all the characters are praying for each other with these little benedictions, right? Naomi prayed for her daughter-in-law, Ruth. Both of her daughter-in-laws actually in the first chapter. She said, may Yahweh show loving kindness with you as you have shown with the dead and with me. Uh, thanking them for their loyalty to her. And so Boaz is now praying for her again. So this woman is already, already has two people praying for God to bless her as she's moving out in sacrificial service. And what is the prayer? He says, may the Lord, may Yahweh repay your work and may your wages be full from Yahweh. And sometimes we, we, we are hesitant to talk about reward as Christians because we, those of us who know the gospel that it's all a gift, as we read in Ephesians 2. It's all a gift. It's a free gift from God. And everyone that is going to heaven is going there 
in spite of everything they've done. Uh, in spite of all their sin, uh, Christ had to die on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin and to give us the gift of a perfect righteousness so that we could have fellowship with God. But Scripture does also say something about reward. And so just to be really clear, what we're talking about here with reward, uh, we are talking about how God is dealing with his children. Okay, so we're not talking about how you become a Christian or become a believer. We're talking about how a believer lives and how God actually rewards the good deeds of his people, of his people who already know him. And he says, may the Lord repay your work. In Boaz's thinking, in his theology, God rewards those who serve him. So the good deeds we do here, the sacrificial acts we engage in here, the ways we serve others, they're actually being remembered. They're being recorded in heaven. And God has this generous reward stored up for us. And there's so much of that uh, doctrine in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, it's, it's not as heavenly, if I may phrase it like that. Okay, so in the New Testament, we see the, may, the big emphasis of our reward is eternity. And our eternal reward in heaven will experience that. And there is some mystery about what exactly that means, treasure in heaven. But in the Old Testament, God uh, blessed people in their lives as a way of teaching us about God's character. So what we're saying is not that we can expect to, to be healthy and wealthy in our life because we're serving God, no. But we do see that, well, God made some people healthy and wealthy in the Old Testament, but he did that to show that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. And that's actually from Hebrews. Those who come to God must believe that he exists and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. So God actually wants you to, wants you to think of him in that way, that he's a rewarder. He's a generous rewarder for, the, for what you do and for how you serve him. And may your wages be full uh, from Yahweh, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come seeking refuge. And so notice that, that the image we have of God is a bird, a mother bird. Okay, a mother bird sheltering her young under her wings. And so that's how Boaz would describe a conversion, the conversion of Ruth to God. Uh, Ruth, in the picture, is this little bird that has run to its mother, seeking refuge under the, the shadow of the mother's wings. And this implies a, uh, a constant surrounding uh, from God for the believer, uh, that God is the one who is completely surrounding the believer and protecting and providing for his children. And yeah, to those of us who, who may not be Christians yet or are still wrestling with some questions about that, uh, that is the picture the Holy Spirit would want you to have in your mind this morning. That, that becoming a Christian is about taking refuge in God. It's about you being unable to deal with your problems. The greatest problem you have is your sin. Being completely exposed to all these problems, the greatest of which is sin and the penalty of sin. But becoming a Christian is running to God, running to Christ for protection and for security, for God to completely shelter you from the penalty of sin, but also from, um, 
from uh, any from all destructive forces to your faith as well as a as a believer, and so that's the picture uh, that God is urging all people, all people without distinction, to come to Him to find refuge and to find shelter, just like that little bird running to its mother. But then for the believer, the picture. Uh, is an encouragement as well. And that's what, what Ruth says. She says, you have spoken to my heart. You have comforted me, she says. And those are the, the ultimate words of comfort, aren't they? It's that Ruth hasn't just come to a generous group of people. She's actually come to God directly, first and foremost. And Boaz is saying, God will not only fully repay you at some point, but he will make sure that you are well provided for. And that he, will, he has now adopted you into his family. And we as his people are going to make sure that you have all that you need. That you have all you need. And so Ruth has this overwhelming sense of relief. Uh, she's comforted. Right, as a young lady, a youngish lady. Uh, a major concern of hers would just be security. Physical safety. Uh, provision. How am I going to uh, live? and provide for my mother-in-law, and there's this overwhelming relief that she feels hearing these words and meeting this man. And so we need to ask the question, I mean, is there really a such, such a thing as risk as a believer? Uh, some of us, right, we need to take risk. Maybe God is bringing us to that point where uh, there's some sacrifice we're thinking about making. Uh, there's maybe a family member like Ruth that may need our help. And we, we are very cautious. We're worried that um, if we move out and come out of our comfort zone, we're not sure what we'll find. Uh, we're, not sure, well, we're not sure if God will really be there to meet our needs and to, to provide for us. Uh, but Scripture says that that's, that's you. You're the little bird. You're the little bird under the wing of its mother. Uh, perfectly secure, perfectly protected, perfectly provided for. And you're now completely free to serve God, to serve God with everything. And so if you ask, well, how, how many risks should I take? Uh, how much should I sacrifice for God? Uh, the answer is a question. Uh, how, I don't know, how big a reward do you want? How many blessings do you want? Um, how much do you want to do for God? Uh, the door is wide open for us to serve God. And that's the image that God gives us here. But Boaz, notice he's not, he's not even done. So he's already been generous, but look at how he steps up his generosity even more in verse 14. He says, at, at, at mealtime, Boaz said to her, to Ruth, come here that you may eat of the bread and dip your piece of bread in the vinegar. So she sat beside the reapers and he served her roasted grain and she ate and was satisfied and had some left. Then she arose to glean, and Boaz commanded his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not dishonor her. Also, you shall purposely pull out for her some grain from the bundles and leave it, that she may glean, and do not rebuke her. And so we, Boaz is giving her even more privileges. So she is already way beyond what normal gleaners would experience. But he now says, Oh, you can even sit down with my workers. And eat with my workers. You don't even have to worry about your, your lunch today. We'll serve you lunch. And we'll give you so much, we'll just dump it in front of you. You'll have this huge basketful to take back to your mother-in-law, which she does. He also serves her 
Um, he also gives her these privileges. He says, not only can you glean as we're harvesting, but you can even be right there with the group that's harvesting. And as, they're, uh, as the men are, are harvesting and, and putting the stalks in piles, uh, the women are coming along bes- behind them likely and tying them up in bundles. And so he, what he's saying is, before the, these ladies even tie them up in bundles, you can just grab a bunch of, a bunch of the stalks right off the pile and take as much as you want. And he warns his workers not to touch her, meaning that um, they would have, otherwise, they would have uh, shooed her away otherwise, because this is very, it would be really presumptuous for someone to do this. Okay, so he's being generous far beyond the requirements of the law. And that's, that's how God's people treat each other. That's how we treat each other. We, we don't just say, okay, what's the bare minimum? Oh, there's a need here. Uh, what's the bare minimum where I can have a clean conscience? And I can say, okay, I checked the box. I did the thing. I helped, I helped uh, my family member or, or I gave this much or I served in this way. And so I can say with a clean conscience, you know, I, do, I am serving God. I'm following the Ten Commandments, right? I'm doing the things Jesus said. But we are sticking more toward the, the letter. Uh, Boaz saw the law. He actually delighted to go beyond the law. So the law required this. He just went way up here into the stratosphere. And that's what a real religious person is like. And religion is not a dirty word around here. Uh, but what we want is true religion. So true religion is always generous. That's, I would say, one of the, the distinguishing marks of, of a, a mature believer is their generosity. Uh, the generous person asks, how much can I give? How much can I give to God? And Boaz is just doing everything he can to lavish Ruth with all these gifts. And so we see that Ruth received favor from the right man. So she just happened to come to the right place at the right time. But she also received favor from the man. And again, the narrator is not saying, then God took Boaz's heart and he forced him to think this way about Ruth. No, it's a free choice. As far as we know, Boaz freely chose to be kind. But somehow, God is, he's, he's in it. Even in Boaz's free choice, even in Ruth's so-called random choice, God is directing. And that's what we're seeing there. But finally see that God provides for us primarily through family. Look at verse 17. And here we see the, the realization, the widows uh, realize now. So at this, up to this point, they don't know what's happening. They don't know who this guy is. He's just a random guy. But look what, uh, they re- they, what happens when they realize who he is. It says, She gleaned in the field until evening, and then she beat out what she had gleaned. And it was about an ephah of barley. So a huge amount of barley. Uh, she took it up and went into the city, and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also took it out and gave Naomi what she had left after she was satisfied from the, from the lunch. Her mother-in-law then said to her, Where did you glean today and where did you work? May he who took notice of you be blessed. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The name of the man with whom I work today is Boaz. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed of Yahweh who has not forsaken his loving kindness to the living and to the dead. Then Naomi said to her, The man is our relative. He is one of our kinsmen redeemers. 
Then Ruth the Moabitess said, Furthermore, he said to me, You shall stay close to my young men until they have finished all my harvest. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you, do, that you go out with his young women so that others do not oppress you in another field. So she stayed close by the young women of Boaz in order to glean until the end of the barley harvest and the wheat harvest. And she lived with her mother-in-law. So notice that, that the, these ladies finally realize who Boaz is. It's not just a random guy. It's not just a random act of kindness. This is actually a relative. And this relative had accepted his responsibility to care and provide for his family. And the first thing that he provided for them was an abundance of food. That's just the basic uh, aspect of providing for those in our families, that we, we need to make sure they have enough food. And he provided this huge abundance. An epha uh, is a measurement, an ancient measurement. It's almost six gallons full of grain. So it's this huge basket, maybe 20 or 30 pounds worth of barley that Ruth took home with her. It would have been at least enough for a week to, to serve them. So she went out for a meal. You know, she went out to find uh, one meal. She came back with this huge, you know, her trunk full, so to speak, uh, like this huge shopping trip to Costco, right, where you come back and your cars, things are falling out of your car. Um, it was that kind of situation. And Naomi is just stunned. Uh, what happened to you? Uh, who did you run into? And so she told her who it was. It was Boaz. But Boaz did more than just provide food for his relatives. He also provided physical safety. So these young ladies, they had no male protector or provider, and in our culture, we, we kind of say poo-poo at all that and say, well, we, ladies are strong. They don't need male protection and et cetera. Um, but they do. And the Bible says that, that men are obligated to care for those who are weaker, including women and children. And so Boaz actually made sure that Ruth would be safe. And so if she had not run into him, she would have had to wander all over town. Okay, so this young lady... Um, not told exactly how old she is, but uh, yeah, a young lady uh, who would be exposed to harassment maybe in other fields with people that were either wicked or not as kind as Boaz. And so by inviting her to stay with him in his reapers, he's actually providing physical protection for her. And Naomi acknowledges that and says, it's good that you will be among his young women. And so he provides for them, their family member. How is this kind of man spoken of? Uh, well, we've already so seen that the Holy Spirit is commending Boaz for his integrity, but I want to bring one more thing out here from the chapter, and that is that he has three separate blessings pronounced upon him in this chapter. So he's triple blessed. Uh, the triple blessed redeemer is this man Boaz. Uh, notice that his reapers, right, his employees, bless him. So he comes and gives, pronounces his blessing on them, uh, and, and they bless him. They actually pronounce a blessing on their boss, Boaz. And then Naomi, in the section we just read, she pronounces two more blessings on him. So before she learns who he is, she, she says, May he who took notice of you be blessed. And then when she learns who he is, she says, Oh, may he be even more blessed for being faithful and loyal to fulfill his obligations to his family and even going far beyond what he even needed to do for us. 
And so God is working uh, in a hidden way through this man, Boaz, to provide for these, these ladies. Naomi also calls him a redeemer, a redeemer. And so in that culture, it was not just that the, your extended family was responsible for you at a basic level, but there were actually specific laws to be applied in these situations. So often, uh, when a woman was bereaved of her husband, um, she might fall into financial hardship, and she might even have to sell property. She might even have to sell the family farm or her possessions. And in such cases, God said, I, when that happens, I want the land to stay within the family, to stay within the same extended family. And so when, when someone is, is pressured by poverty to sell some of their property, I want someone called a redeemer to come and actually buy it from them. So if they've been forced to sell it, maybe to someone outside the family, I want the redeemer to come and buy it. And that, whoever owns it is, is forced to, re- to sell it back into the family. Um, but the redeemer was actually a, a broader concept as well. And as we'll see, that it's, there's a, an application also to marriage. So when a widow was bereft of her husband and there were no male heirs, someone called the Redeemer would, would have to come in and marry the widow if he was able to, of course. Uh, the Redeemer, that word means someone that buys back, uh, someone that rescues someone. So Boaz, Naomi calls him a Redeemer, saying that this is someone that God is, it seems like God is using to rescue us from our financial poverty and from our, uh, our lack of male protection as well. And so wh- what do we learn here? What's, what's the big takeaway here? Well, we see that God is obviously providing for Ruth in abundant ways. So it, he's not just giving her the bare minimum, the scraps that she needs each day, but he's lavishing her with, with far more than she needs. Uh, she comes home the first day she goes out. She comes back home with a week's worth of food and with this generous man offering to um, let her work. Uh, and this huge relief is coming to her. And so we see that God is, provides for his people through the, the so seemingly random things that occur in our lives, through giving us favor with people, and also through family. And, and so how does that you know, bringing this into today, how does that relate to us? Well, God has given many of us real families. Like, we are in a natural family where this is happening, uh, where there is a faithful man providing for his family and providing protection and security for those under his care. And if that's true of you, that you can know that God, that is one way God is providing for you. He's providing for you through the family unit. And that is God's welfare system, basically. That is the ideal welfare system God had in mind. is for the nuclear family, but also the extended family, to be this safety net for us when we, when we do fall into hardship. But okay, I can almost already hear it. That's not true for a lot of us. For, for a lot of us, we'd say, well, I was raised by a pack of wolves without a compassionate bone in their body. They never did anything for me. Uh, and I've had to just fend for myself, right? Like the kid from the, the Jungle Book or something. Um, well, you are right on one level, uh, but the, the family, especially for the Christian, has a much broader meaning and a deeper meaning. 
And so if you're sitting there thinking, well, I don't have a family. Uh, well, we're sitting right here. You actually are part of a family. And part of that, it's not just that we offer spiritual encouragement for each other, but we are actually a form of a safety net for each other. Um, God has commanded the church to be that way, the same way he commanded the Jews to be that. So I want to encourage you, if you are worried about just your daily needs, if you're worried about having enough for tomorrow, uh, or just you have no direction, you're confused by life, we are here. You know, you, you, if you have a true financial need, you know, let us know. We'll pay it. If you need someone to serve you, let us know. Uh, we will serve you. Uh, you want to talk or, or you, you need counsel, maybe with, with someone else or for me, uh, we are here and happy to provide for you. We want to be that for you. We do want to be God's primary expression of care for you in your life as the church. That's what the church is, isn't it? So you can just know that you're not alone. It's not just you. Uh, it's not ju- if you if you mess up and you uh, can't make ends meet in a month from now, or or the economy tanks, or you uh, you're be- you have some horrible illness. I mean, we're here to help you and to provide for you uh, when that is necessary. So it, the the picture of the worried Christian it, it's just a a total contradiction, isn't it? Uh, some, imagine someone being worried when they're adopted into God's family and they have thousands of compassionate relatives. And that's you. It's not only us, but we're actually part of a, a network of churches that feels the same way. And if there were people in our congregation who had a great need, uh, there would be hundreds of people eager to help at any point. Uh, of course, it's not a license to, to, to presume upon others' kindness, but it is a real blessing God wants you to be aware of. And so I want to leave you with that encouragement that it's not just you. Uh, God has brought you into a family and one practical way the church loves you is by by being that for you and by being um, sort of like this man Boaz was to Ruth, part of God's family, part of her extended family. And so as Act 2, as chapter 2 closes, uh, we see that it ends the same way as, as the first act in the story, doesn't it? With reference to the harvest. So remember at the end of chapter 1, it said these, these widows arrived and it, it was the beginning of harvest, even though Naomi was down in the dumps. She was lamenting this bitter lament. But the narrator says it's not so bitter, is it? The harvest is coming up. The harvest is right there. The same way at the end of chapter 2. Uh, the harvest is again alluded to. So her bitterness is beginning to recede. She now begins to realize, oh, maybe God, maybe God hasn't totally abandoned me after all. Uh, maybe God isn't punishing me after all. Maybe something good is happening. And so she's starting to perk up and to, uh, to regain some of her vitality. But this chapter has mainly been about Ruth's experience. And so again, what did she do? She was a lady who left her father, her mother, her culture, her false religion, thank God, as well, in Moab. But she left everything and out of compassion chose to take a risk and to serve her mother-in-law, someone in her, her near family, someone just right there next to her. And so when we're talking about making sacrifices for God, we're not talking necessarily about these huge feats, going to China and 
you know, going to jail, con- some sort of concentration camp in, uh, camp in China, although many people are doing heroic things like that, just start with looking around you. Who are the people in my family? Who's, who's right next to me? What needs are there? And just begin serving other people. And that's the ultimate antidote to anxiety. Uh, when you just sit around thinking about all the things that could go wrong, you're just spinning in the mud. The wheels are just spinning. And the engine's overheating. And it's going to blow up. Uh, the solution to anxiety is to, to spin your wheels, but spin them on different things. Uh, become consumed with God's interests, with the needs of people around you, and just try to be faithful. Just be faithful with uh, what's before you. If you have work, just go to work and be faithful that day for God. And spend your, your spare time, so to speak, um, thinking more about how you can serve others and, and sacrifice for others. And you'll find over time the anxiety, it'll just, it'll just, slip, it'll just disappear at some point. And that's the encouragement God has for us from this chapter. Our Father, we thank you for this message of Ruth. Thank you for your generous provision for us. Thank you for providing for all of our needs, uh, for giving us families, for giving us favor with uh, prominent people at strategic times. Thank you for bringing us uh, to this town and for providing for us. We thank you also for the church, that we are now part of this great family uh, who loves each other. Uh, We pray that that would be true of us, that we would be compassionate, loving, eager to serve each other, generous in our acts of love as well, to go beyond the call of duty in, in all that we do here. Thank you, most of all, for your generosity and salvation for not only forgiving us for our sin and rescuing us from hell, but also giving us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, uh, for seating us with Christ in the heavenly places so that uh, we can now say there, there is no blessing that you've withheld from us. You have truly exceeded uh, everything that we could have hoped for. Help us to continue in faith this week, uh, to continue believing these things and trusting for the full realization of your promises. And we pray that you would keep us from anxiety and from doubt as we serve you. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.